This podcast is for information purposes only. It does not represent the opinions of Vested Finance, and it is not intended to be financial advice. We recommend that you consult with a financial advisor before committing to any financial decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Vested Finance Podcast. Thanks to popular demand, we have returned from our hiatus. For our new listeners, my name is Darren Arifin. I am a co-founder of Vested Finance, and we are an internet platform that empowers global investors to invest in the U.S. stock market. Every week, we will be bringing you thoughtful content at the intersection of technology, investing, and economy. I'm joined today by our new colleague, Gabe Thomas, who will be co-hosting the show with me moving forward. How's it going, Gabe? Great to be here. And to everyone listening, welcome to episode number 25 of the Vested Finance Podcast. All right, Gabe, what will we be discussing today? So we're going to be talking about initial public offerings. What does this bring to mind to you, Darwin? To me, it brings to mind a CEO ringing the bell on the stock exchange. I think that the concept of an IPO is exciting and fun. We've seen an uptick in the number of companies that are actually hitting the market, whether that's through IPOs, SPACs, or direct listings. More and more retail investors are looking to invest in the same day when companies are made available. Let's discuss why this might not be the best of ideas, though. Yeah, generally, investing in an IPO on the first day of the listing is not a great idea, especially for retail investors. To understand why, we must first understand what factors affect returns. So I want to introduce the concept of the returns equation. Do you want to break this down for our listeners? Yeah, of course. So the returns that investors realize from their investments can be derived from three core sources. Mm -hmm. Number one is shareholder yield. This is excess cash that the company spends on either buying back shares, share buyback, or giving out dividends. The more cash a company spends to return to shareholders via this route, the more returns the investors will generate through share price depreciation. And I think that we're seeing more and more companies take this approach of doing share buybacks, which means spending cash to reduce the amount of shares in circulation, which naturally also increases the share price. But traditionally, cash is sent back to investors in the form of dividends. This amount is referred to as a dividend yield. More mature companies like utilities will pay investors a nice dividend, maybe quarterly. But tech companies are different. They actually use cash to reinvest it in the company to grow it further. What's the second core source of the returns equation? The company's growth that can be measured on different metrics, actually. Earnings result, revenue growth, growth in the book value, or other um, metrics of your choice. So Amazon is probably one of the most popular in using growth to deliver returns. Jeff Bezos famously, for a better part of 20 years of Amazon's history, spends most of Amazon's excess cash by investing in different aspects of the business to grow Amazon. When you think about Amazon, they have so many different businesses now, but it started off with investments in new frontiers, in cloud computing, in Alexa, in two-day prime shipping, and so on. So Amazon's management, rather than returning the cash to investors through dividend or share buybacks, um, invested in growing the business because the management believed that it's more tax efficient this way, right? Because neither Amazon nor the investors pay taxes if they return the value in this manner. And finally, the third source of your returns is actually valuation change. This is the trickiest of the three, as it involves human assumptions. 
Some investors use financial models that take input of interest rates or some assumptions of a company's growth rates to justify valuation changes. This is why changes in interest rates can affect stock prices. But other investors use narratives, stories, or even memes, or driven by fear of missing out or FOMO to assess change in valuation. The valuation change factor is the one that often gets investors into trouble because it leads to investing in companies that are overly hyped. Yeah, and I think this is a classic case of the narrative getting ahead of the numbers, right? I've definitely fallen victim for that on more than one occasion. Yeah, me too. I invested in Facebook at its IPO price, which proceeded to drop by like 50% over the following two years. Yeah, I, I think that happens to the best of us. Just to round out the return equation again for our listeners, total returns equals shareholder yield plus growth plus changes in valuation. Yeah, so if our listeners want to read the equation in written format, they can check out our blog, which we will link on the show notes. Right. And let's get back on topic here. What does this have to do with investing in IPOs? Well, it's often the case that the hype is the highest when the company is about to go public. There's a lot of media attention. There's a lot of social media chatter. The valuation change component, the third component, is distorted the most as company approaches its IPO and typically trending towards a higher valuation. At the same time, this is also the period where data around the growth component is at its lowest level of availability. We just don't have as much of historical data for the company. Right. So hype is an all-time high. The valuation is stretched and we have little info on the growth of the company. These are obviously poor conditions for an initial investment. And we actually have the data to back up our argument. So return data for IPO investing for the past 40 years. We looked at over 8,000 IPOs. The data was sourced from Warrington College of Business. So when you compare IPO returns versus non-IPO companies of similar size, you actually see that newly listed companies underperform the benchmark for practically any period from six months to five years post-IPO. Exactly. And this underperformance has largely been true for the past 40 years. So when we look at the data, as you mentioned, about more than 8,000 IPOs, data source from Warrington College, you look at different holding periods, right? And then you compare that with its comparable set, matching the size of the company. So if you hold it for first years over any period of the last 40 years, uh, you actually underperform by about 3.4%. If you hold for two years, you underperform by negative 7.2% on average. Uh, third year, it's negative 2.4% on average. And fifth year, it's around negative 2.2%. So regardless of the holding period, whether six months, a year, two, three, four, five years, generally when you invest in the IPO, at the first day of them being public, you underperform the benchmark. So clearly, this is kind of an average approach, right? You look at the average IPO for the average retail investors, and the average retail investors don't have access to the pre-public pricing, which normally enjoys some level of pop, especially in the US. That's actually an access that's very difficult to get. So again, if you want to look at the charts, check out the, the blog, which we'll, we'll link on the show notes. Okay. So if you're listening to this right now, you're thinking 40 years is definitely a long time. We shouldn't be averaging for this amount of time. It's just too long of a time span. And the investing world has probably changed a lot since then. Right. 40 years ago, China was an agricultural country. We didn't have internet. 
So that's certainly a valid concern. But we also have the data for the three-year return buy and hold strategy, investing over the years from whatever different starting years. So from 1980 to 2019. And the data assumes that you just buy and hold for three years and you start on different years, right? So for example, you can start in 1980, hold for three years. You start in 1981 and hold for three years to 1984 and so on and so forth. So you got a lot of different rolling three years return. And out of the different 40 start years, there are 26 years when you have negative returns or 65%. So two thirds of the time, you're actually, again, losing money. Right. And as it turns out, investing in small IPOs is actually even worse. So if you dissect the data even further, there's a particular skew of IPOs that are really bad. On average, the data shows that a three-year buy and hold strategy for companies of less than $20 million underperforms by 30 to 40%. Companies from 50 to 100 million in revenue underperforms the benchmark by 15 to 20%. So maybe investing in pre-revenue, pre-product SPACs is a pretty bad idea. That's true. We do have a silver lining. It turns out that investing in larger tech IPOs, it's not so bad. We define large tech companies as having revenues of more than $100 million in the last 12 months leading to the IPO. And then the sector has to be in technology. And on average, these large tech stocks outperform the benchmark after a three-year buy and hold strategy. So what's your takeaway from the data and whether or not investors should participate in new IPOs? Generally, investing in IPOs yields worse return than investing in the broader market. Investing in an IPO means that you're investing near the peak of the hype cycle. So maybe it's better to wait. Waiting also allows you to gather more data on the company. Emotions can run super high when you see an IPO fly out of the gates. So sometimes waiting can be the best course of action. It's not like they're going to run out of shares to sell, right? Right. And I think after looking at the data, I can honestly say probably the best idea is not to invest in small IPOs. The data is pretty conclusive. Investing in IPOs with small revenue tends to underperform, no matter how attractive the narrative sounds. Yeah, this is probably a good transition to talk about Coinbase. The stock is down more than 34% as of this recording from the IPA day closing price, which was about two months ago. The share price decline actually started even before the recent crypto slide. So it's unlikely to be related to just the recent crypto price decline. And if you look at the company's revenue, earnings, and even disclosures data, nothing has materially changed since the last disclosures before and up to the IPO and recently after it announced its Q1 earnings. Okay, so you're saying that basically now that the hype has passed, the current valuation is more reflective of the current business? It could be, at least it's directionally moving towards the right direction, right? Let's talk about Coinbase's business again. We wrote about this a couple of months ago on our blog. In the blog, we talked about how trading platforms such as Coinbase have greatly benefited from the increase in demand from investors looking to buy Bitcoin and also other cryptocurrencies. It's actually even been reported that Coinbase's prime brokerage arm helped MicroStrategy and Tesla acquiring their Bitcoin investments. Yeah, and the reality is that Coinbase is much more than a crypto trading app, or at least the vision of the company is much more than that. The company is trying to be more than just a broker or trading application. It is vertically integrating across the entire stack of the crypto economy. This is a term that was mentioned 63 times in its S1 prospectus. So it has a crypto market 
market making business. It acts as a crypto exchange. It also serves as a custodian, brokerage, and payments provider for crypto related um, currencies. This is a structure that's unique in the crypto world because of its newness. Unlike traditional finance, where most of these functions are carried out by different established companies. Yeah, and and this is totally different from conventional finance, right? Where you have payment processors like Square and PayPal. You have your broker dealers like Robinhood, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade. You have custodians, BNY Mellon, State Street come to mind. And you also have the exchanges like Nasdaq or ICE. Each of these institutions captures a different slice of the financial pie. Exactly. And in this context, you can see how ambitious Coinbase's value proposition is. So let's take a deeper dive into the revenue drivers of this company, right? It made about $1.3 billion in sales in 2020. The largest driver of its revenue was transactional revenue, representing about 86% of total revenue. And the majority of this revenue actually came from retail investors, about 80% or so. And then institutional investors generated only a minority of the trading revenue, about 4.5% or so, despite contributing to the majority of the volume. Two-thirds of Coinbase's volume actually came from institutional clients, but only 4 or so percent of revenue came from these segment of the user base. So this asymmetry means that Coinbase charges institutions much, much lower fees to incentivize them to trade in order to provide liquidity in the exchange. And even recently, the company adjusted its incentives to institutions to provide more liquidity to less popular cryptocurrencies. So Coinbase generates the bulk of their revenue from retail investors, where Coinbase actually charged a lot. It charged consumers through two methods, commissions per trade and also adding margin to the buy and sell spread. Okay, and I think it's important to mention here that since retail investors are the primary driver of your revenue, this also means that Coinbase's revenue can vary a lot from quarter to quarter. Q1 2021 revenue was announced in May to be $1.8 billion. This was three times as much as Q4 2020 revenue and more than the entire revenues combined for 2020. So when crypto prices rally, more users tend to join Coinbase. They increase trading activity and a higher crypto price translates to more margins and more commissions for Coinbase. So the result here is that there's a correlation between revenue, volatility, and also the number of monthly transaction users or MTUs. Right. So the underlying volatility of crypto translate to revenue volatility for the company as well. And in order to reduce revenue volatility and increase predictability of cash flow, which is super important if you're a public company, otherwise your share price will fluctuate greatly on the whims of public investors, Coinbase is investing heavily in subscription and service revenue. This segment of the business is the fastest growing, albeit starting from a very small base, and is really a key for further institutional adoption. Right. And I, I have the data here in front of me for Coinbase's recurring revenues. The top line item we have is custodial fees. These represent about 1.5% of total revenue. These are essentially revenues that Coinbase earns through holding in their custody customers' assets. Coinbase provides what's called a cold storage solution. The crypto that they hold is actually held offline to increase security. 
Yeah, considering the prevalence of hacking in this sector, keeping one's crypto assets safe is really not an easy task. And Coinbase remains one of the few institutions that has not been a victim of a hack. And this cold storage service is especially important for large institutions holding billions of Bitcoins, right? Uh, a company like Tesla is not equipped to hold billions worth of Bitcoin. So they can't store Bitcoin in a bank either, right? So they have to employ outside crypto custodian firms such as Coinbase to hold their crypto assets. Okay, let's move on to the second source of recurring revenue for Coinbase. This is actually staking revenue. So let's define what staking is for, for our listeners. Staking is revenue that Coinbase generates when it participates in creating or validating blocks for other crypto networks. Simply put, Staking is the act of locking cryptocurrencies to receive rewards. People talk about Bitcoin mining, which relies on proof of work, but some other blockchains actually rely on what's called proof of stake. And this is how Coinbase generates these revenues. The third source of revenues is through the earn campaign. These actually represent about 0.5% of total revenue. So not very much right now. But when you think of Coinbase as having 56 million verified users, Coinbase is starting to monetize these users' attention, helping to promote other crypto assets through their website and educational content. Right. So, okay. To round out our recurring revenue discussion, companies also report some other recurring revenues, which is about you know, 11% of total revenue. There's interest income, subscription, and crypto asset sales. It actually holds a lot of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And when the price fluctuates, it, it monetizes and, and offloads some of that holdings. All right. I think that covers revenue streams. Yeah. It's very clear from this that Coinbase is trying to diversify its revenue sources. So it's trying to smoothen out that volatility by relying on these different sources of recurring revenue. We also mentioned that Coinbase has a particularly strong mix of retail and institutional guys, but we can actually break this down further. So who are the natural customers for Coinbase? Okay, well, from a high level, Coinbase has three types of customers. First, we have the retail users, which generates the bulk of the revenue. As of Q1 of 2021, the company has about 6.1 million monthly trading users, also known as MTUs. Next, we have the institutional folks, right? Hedge funds, corporate clients who have crypto exposures, money managers. The company has 7,000 institutional clients using its platform, which is a staggering seven times increase in the last three years. And finally, we have ecosystem partners. These include developers, merchants, and other asset issuers. And at the end of 2020, the company had 115,000 partners located in 100 countries. Okay, so we've already mentioned that the primary driver for revenues is being carried out by retail investors. But we think that the engine for future growth is going to come from institutional accounts. Institutional investors can act as market makers. They provide liquidity on Coinbase's exchange, and they also lower revenue volatility, as we've already mentioned. We've already painted a very optimistic picture for Coinbase, but there have to be a bunch of risks as well. What are some of these risks? Yeah, with crypto, the risks are plentiful. And they can broadly be categorized into three buckets. Number one is valuation risk. Number two is asset class risk. And number three is regulatory risk. On the first risk, the valuation risk, Crypto has gone through multiple boom and bust cycles in the past decade, right? We might just be entering the fifth one right now. We came off the highs of April and crypto is down close to 38% from 65000 to $37,000. 
and Coinbase share price itself is, is down 34% since its IPO. But with this decline, now the valuation, if you look at uh, price over sales ratio, starts to look a little bit more reasonable at 16.5x. However, the company still commands a premium valuation even when you compare it against its peers, right? This premium valuation implies that investors might be looking at Coinbase as more than just a retail trading application, but rather as a core infrastructure provider of crypto assets for everything, the full stack that we just discussed. For comparison, when you compare Coinbase with other highly valued companies, Tesla's price to sales ratio is 16 times. Square's is seven times and PayPal is 13 times. Even compared to these highly valued companies, Coinbase tops all of them. I want to take a second to talk about the second risk you mentioned, Darwin, asset class risk. So for Coinbase to live up to this hype that we've already described, we need retail and institutional investors to really believe in crypto assets. So we need mainstream adoption. And for an asset class to be taken seriously, it, it has to have utility. And what do I mean by utility? What is Bitcoin actually for? Right now, I think that we can agree that most people are buying Bitcoin as a very speculative investment. When one invests in a share of companies, for example, say Amazon, they sell tangible products. These services generate cash flows for the company and ultimately for the investors as well. So as a shareholder, you have rights to that cash flow. You have a vote that counts. When you buy a commodity, oils, metals, it can be gold. Those commodities have real world applications. Some people are arguing that Bitcoin functions as a store of value. But for something to have a store of value potential, it, it has to have low volatility. And right now, volatility is way too high. For example, the annual volatility for 2020 was 84%. So I think there are some risks still for this asset class to be deemed legitimate. Right. Going back to the, the third risk, when we talk about legitimacy, the final say actually rests at the hands of the government. In a recent talk, Peter Thiel, co-founder of PayPal and self-proclaimed Bitcoin maximalist, said that Bitcoin can actually be a tool for China to undermine the US dollar as the global reserve currency. And I'd like to quote Peter Thiel here. So from China's point of view, they don't like the U.S. having this reserve currency because it gives the U.S. a lot of leverage. He also goes on to say that, and I quote, I do wonder whether at this point Bitcoin should also be thought in part as a Chinese financial weapon against the U.S. where it threatens fiat money, but it especially threatens the U.S. dollars and China wants to do things to weaken it, end quote. It is true that most compute power used to validate Bitcoin transactions called the network's hash rate is located in China. In fact, it's about two thirds of the global hash rate of compute power is located in China because of low cost of electricity and cold temperatures there. Nevertheless, geographic concentration does not mean that the hash rate is controlled by a single entity. In fact, in, at least in China and the US and Russia, it is a collection of many private entities. But then again, China, actually has a long record of exerting control over private industries in the past. And the most recent example is the clampdown of their homegrown tech companies. We can't really rule out the Chinese government's ability to actually exert control over the hash rate of Bitcoin. This is very interesting because if you think that Bitcoin could threaten the dollar status as the world standard currency reserve, then I think that the U.S. would have a very strong argument to regulate Bitcoin and also other cryptos. So 
this regulatory uncertainty is going to be a hindrance to Coinbase's growth, and it could even hurt its stock price. Right, exactly. And at this stage, a lot of this is just conjecture, right? We, we speculate based on the data, based on what we've seen, but regulation uncertainties will certainly be bad for institutional adoption and might deter uh, wider adoption. It is funny, though, when you think about the definition of money as medium exchange, as store of value, the regulatory standpoint is never explicitly stated because, at least in our modern history, money has always been issued by the government. Crypto, Bitcoin specifically, is one of the, the first, at least, and the most popular um, example of open source money, where it's not issued by a government, but it is accepted globally, which is interesting. It is very interesting. Okay, folks, so that concludes our discussion on Coinbase and whether or not you should invest in IPOs. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode number 25. For more insights into markets and emerging technologies, please visit our blog at vested.co.in. As always, take care, stay safe, and happy investing.